Welcome back to another episode of The Authors Unite Show. Here's your host, Tyler Wagner. All right, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of The Authors Unite Show. Um, Today, I have Clint with us. He is a seasoned entrepreneur with over 30 years experience as a project manager and leader. He is also a published author, teacher, and expert in team building and the art of conversation. So perfect for podcasts. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So um, let's let's start here. Before, so 30 years you've been uh, an entrepreneur. What were you doing before that that led you to become an entrepreneur? It was a circuitous route, to say the least. Um, Growing up, my dad was a serial entrepreneur, so he had something. I, I don't think he ever, when I was growing up, had a, tr- a traditional job. It was always he had this beer store or, or that wine shop, or he ran his own construction company. And I actually looked at all that and thought, yeah, that's not for me. I want to punch a clock and, and get my paycheck and go home, right? But uh, it, it's funny how things end up. Right out of high school, I joined the Navy. I spent six years in the Navy on an aircraft carrier as an electrician's mate. And from there, I went and worked at a shipyard for a little while. And frankly, there's probably no greater motivation to go to college in the world than to work in a shipyard in Norfolk, Virginia in the months of December and January, which is exactly what I was doing. <laughs> it's after, after two months of brutally cold weather and it just not a, not a pleasant experience, I thought, you know, college sounds like a really good idea to me. I was lucky enough to get into Georgia Tech and I have an electrical engineering degree from Georgia Tech. And started working while I was at Tech, started working across the street at Coca-Cola. And at Coca-Cola is where I came to know this company, Project Success. Actually took some classes from them, met the people who worked there, really liked what they did. And so in 1994, I left Coca-Cola and went to work for Project Success. All those years later, I'm still doing it. So in 2005, the existing owners wanted to sell the business. And I was able to put together a deal to buy it. So that's how I ended up owning the company on my own. Oh, awesome. And then tell us a little bit more, like what is Project Success? We basically help transform organizations into successful project management execution companies. So we work for a lot of the Fortune 500, the Fortune 50 uh, companies and help them execute their projects. We teach project management methodologies. Uh, we have a course called the Project Success Method, which was our first book, my first book, published back in 2009 on Wiley still available. And then that's really more of the process side of things. And then we come in and help you. Once you've kind of learned the techniques, we actually help you implement them at your facility, at your site, doing whatever it is that you guys do. And that could be everything from large construction projects and in Times Square to semiconductor chip design projects to uh, developing a bulldozer or ag, ag tractor for different clients. So really just helping you put together the processes that will help you be successful My thought is if you have projects where if you don't deliver on time, you lose customers or you lose money, then that's something that having good processes and techniques like we bring to bear can help. Got it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And and I'm sure, you know, what you guys are doing is way more than this. But one thing that changed my life was just a little soft, well, two, Slack and Basecamp. (laughs) Like, I can't tell you how just so much of a difference. I I was uh, running around with my head cut off before I got on this. Um. So, gotcha. Now, so th- so you've actually been doing the same thing for kind of like thir- like a while. Like this is this is the project success. 
Yeah, so I've, I've been actually using the project success method since 1992, uh, 1991, 92, somewhere in there. And uh, obviously since 1994, doing it on a dedicated basis, but even a couple of years before that was using it at Coca-Cola as an engineer. So that's, that's kind of been my, my history. And I spend most of my time uh, for the first, I'd say first half of my career at Project Success, I was actually on the road implementing what we talk about in the classroom, but I was actually doing it with the clients. And over the last half of my career, it's more of a, you know, 50-50 or 60-40 mix where I spend more time. Um, I try to keep at least 50-50 where I'm actually working in the field to make sure my hands are still, you know, in the, in the stuff and then also teaching it as well. And we've taught our courses over 40,000 times. So we have a pretty big user base of, of people that have found it to be very helpful. Gotcha. And then in your introduction, you said the art of conversation. So like me as a podcaster, I, I'm always trying to get better at that. So what, what uh, I guess, what tips do you have on that? Well, I think it's interesting because over my career, as I teach the, the courses around project management, what I've noticed, and I think it's just my own evolution. I don't think it's anything that's changed. It's either my own awareness of it has changed, or uh, I, I guess that's probably what it is, is my own awareness has changed. But when I first started off I, as an engineer, I love math. And so I was always very math based and the project management stuff really attracted me because it's, it's math based, right? So activity A and after that you do activity B for 10 days and that's followed by C for five days. So the total length is 20 days. And that, you know, that appeals to me because I love math. But as I progressed throughout my career, I realized more and more that it was really more about, you know, really what we offer when we do projects, if you want to be successful, is really about clarity. You need to bring clarity to the converse, to the situation. And the way we do that is through conversation. You bring clarity through conversation. So one of the things that, that we're always talking about is we bring people together to have a conversation, actually force a conversation amongst ourselves about what the project is and what the project's not. And that goes against kind of human nature because human nature is, think about a typical person who's, a, who's a, on a project team. They are assigned to a project, you know, more than likely they work in a matrix organization where the, as a project manager, you don't actually own the people on your team because they're dotted line to your project and they're actually solid line to the functional manager who gives them pay raises and job reviews and all those kinds of things. And they're dotted line to your project plus five other projects. So if you're one of those team members on those six different projects, as you, you see, so you walk into a, a meeting room where you just learned about project number six and in 20 minutes, the business unit vice president talks about how important this project is to the organization, success, and really Q4 results, and blah, blah, blah. And then he says, you guys know your jobs, go make it happen. And so you walk out of that room with project number six on your plate, and all you know about it is there's, it's a year. You got a year to do it, and you got five other projects you're already worried about. So more than likely, you're really not that worried about project number six. And that's really not a pleasant experience or really a really, really good environment to be in because, you know, I'll ask you the question, Tyler. So if, if you had a project, you already had five on your plate and you walked into this meeting room and 20 minutes later, you walk out with number six on your plate where the deadline is a year in the future. There's been no conversation around which tasks belong to you or coming back together at any point in time. How much work do you think actually gets done in a 12 month project in the first, say, six to eight weeks? How much physical labor do you think happens? 
probably very little. Yeah, there's no plan. There's no no ownership. There's none, none of that, right? So we advocate really is around having a conversation about who's going to do what and when. So the beauty of that is that when you begin to execute on the project and you have these conversations, if you force the conversation, when I say pull people out of their silos, right? People like to be in silos. They like to... Uh, be around people just like themselves to speak their language, get their jokes. They, they kind of understand them. And you have to force people out of their silos to plan early because people, what they say is I've already got too much going on. I'm going to get to this. I'm going to get to this eventually is what they're thinking to themselves. And we're saying, listen, let's plan the project up front on day one. You can, so then we'll know exactly what has to be done next week and what you can afford to wait three, four, five, six months to go out and do. And I think, so in my world, I think the, the issue there is people have good intentions, but intentions don't deliver, right? Conversations help gain clarity, and that's what really delivers. For instance, there was a, a study done back in 1997, a survey, I should say, back in 1997 by U.S. News and World Report. And I love, even though the study is, the survey is dated, I love the concept behind it. They interviewed a bunch of people in the U.S., and they said, what do you think this person's chance is of getting into heaven? And so they, you know, so they start throwing out, throwing out names. And I tell you the names, obviously, that was clearly in the, in, in the late 90s. But Bill Clinton, you know, what, what is his chance of getting into heaven? 52%. What is Hillary Clinton's chance? 55%. Uh, Newt Gingrich, Al Gore, Michael Jordan, 65%. Oprah Winfrey, 66%. So apparently, you know, that, that's a good thing, right? <laughs> Money's good. Um, Mother <laughs> Teresa, Mother Teresa, they gave her a 79% chance of getting into heaven. Only 79%. Now, only one respondent got higher than 79%. Who do you think that was? Oh, man, I, I have no idea. <laughs> the people taking the survey. <laughs> if they took the survey, they gave themselves an 87% chance of getting into heaven. They, they gave themselves a higher chance of getting into heaven than Mother Teresa. And so the more I thought about that, to me, what's being, what I'm really saying there is I'm basing my own self on intentions. My intention is to do good. My intention is to do right. My intention is to get the work done. And you base every, you judge everybody else on actual results. And that's what happens in project work. We don't have these, we don't force ourselves to have these conversations and we, you know, we get lost in that and our intentions are good, but then no work happens in the first two months of a 12 month project. And what you end up with is a project that now must be done in 10 months instead of 12 months, which, of course, is even more difficult to actually pull off. Wow. So for us, it's about forcing conversations to have clarity. Interesting. Okay, so, um, and I don't know if you're able to use, uh, well, no, on your website, you, you do uh, advertise some of your clients. So I guess when you first walk in with a client, I'm assuming it's different if it's, you know, big Fortune 50 or if it's more of like a smaller business, but is it more like, do you just kind of be like a fly on the wall in a sense and just like watch the operation and then give them kind of a manual of like, Hey, here's where you can improve. No, it's very much team centric. Our job is to, okay. so when we're there for sure, we're only there for a short period of time on an, on an individual project. We okay. might there, be there for just three or four days. We might be there for two or three weeks um, just to get the project plan and going. And then periodically we can come back and, and make sure that things are staying on track. But in that three or four days we're together up front, what we're doing is you know, we're kind of leading things, we're facilitating things, but we rely on the people on the team to develop their activities. So we're just driving the process. So we're, we're not a fly on the wall. We're very much the, the focal point of 
having forcing the conversations to happen, forcing Joe to talk to Jill and Jill to talk to Fred and Fred to talk back to Joe. And yeah. one of the one of the things we always talk about is the, the very first step is really developing the scope statement, what we call the charter document. And if there's 25 people in the room, more than likely there are 10 or 15 different opinions about what the project is. And human nature often being what it is, I don't really want to bring it up because I might disagree with you and I don't really want to argue about it. I'm just going to keep doing my thing and, you know, maybe you'll get the, maybe you'll figure it out and come along with me. And what we do is say, no, that can't happen. What we need is let's spend the next two, three hours arguing if necessary about this. So at the end of that three hours, we're all in alignment and we leave the room. We all have a clear understanding of what the scope is and we're all ready to go with it. Gotcha. That makes sense. Um, and then I wanted to ask you too, uh, about, about the book. So a lot of our listeners are, um, they're authors and aspiring authors. So what was your, like, what was it like for you to write your book? Did you have, I'm assuming you had a process in place. <laughs> well, actually I did, but I would say the first, the first book was, wasn't really that difficult. It was, you know, it's basically just a, a book version of what we teach in the class anyway. So it was, that was actually pretty straightforward. And this book still gets used even all these years later. It, it gets used in some college courses and project management. And um, I had a really cool story where this is kind of when you know that that you've maybe arrived a little bit. We recently moved, well, recently being three, three years ago, but we moved and we had our new provider for cable services was Comcast. And they happened to be a client of ours anyway. So one day my wife says, hey, the tennis channel's out and she's a huge tennis buff. So we're, you know, so that wasn't going to work. So I get on the phone with Comcast and tech support and, and the guy for the first, you know, 15, 20 minutes is like, well, Mr. Clint, try this. Mr. Clint, try that. Mr. Clint, try this. And then there's a this really long pause. He says, Clint Paget. He says, by any chance, are you an author? And I said, well, that's one of the things that I do. He says, did you write a book called The Project Success Method? And I said, yes, I did. And he said, I've read your book. And I thought, there were probably 30,000 people work at Comcast. And I found the one guy that read my book. <laughs> That's awesome. So the first book was actually not that difficult. But this last one that I wrote is coming out in July, August on Forbes Books. That one has been much, much more difficult for me to write. And I think it was just because... I am a bit of a perfectionist and I have a very specific way I, I want to do it. And so I've ripped the book apart probably three or four different times and put it all back together. But I finally gave the, the final line edit to the editor last week. And now it's just the, they have to do their piece and it'll come out, like I said, July or August. So I, I think it's, you have to have a process. You have to, uh, to me, it's kind of looking at what the overall view of the, or what the all goal of the book is to do. And, and then, break it up into what the chapters are and what you want to tell in each chapter. And then from there, you can just kind of dig down. And before you know it, you have, you have your skeleton and you start putting some meat on the skeleton. But I will say that this, the process was much more difficult for me the second time than the first time, which I was surprised by. Yeah, that is interesting. So I'm curious because I, th I think they're fairly new. It, obviously not as general in business, but what's, um, or whatever you can tell, What's it like with Forbes books? Like, are they, is it like traditional publishing or, or what's that? Is it similar to Wiley or way different? It's, it's a little bit of a hybrid. So I would say it's, it's, it's got some of the traditional publishing in and then it's got some of the, the, the non-traditional stuff. You can, for me personally, I think what attracted me to this, this one 
uh, since you have a, uh, authors as your audience, uh, they'll yeah. already know this, but you know, if you go the traditional publishing route, which is what I did with Wiley, and they were obviously awesome experience with them, really loved everything they brought. And, you know, you can't ever say bad things about the person who actually wrote you a big check to publish your book, right, which is always a positive. Yeah. Uh, what I will say that they did not offer that somebody like a Forbes Books does is the support after the fact. So once the book comes, at least this is my experience. Again, I don't want to, you know, say anything too negative, but my experience was that once the book came out, I was pretty much on my own. And I, maybe that's the way it's supposed to be. I just didn't, I didn't have any, any uh, support and being a first time author, even though I've been doing my job as an entrepreneur and working at project management for 20 plus years at that point, I still didn't, I didn't know how to do a, a book launch. I didn't know how to do a book tour. And so none of that stuff really made sense to me. And obviously when you do it traditional way, you have set in your contract, how much you have to, some, your audience will know this, but most people don't. You don't get your book for free, right? You have to buy copies of your book from the publisher and that book is set at a certain price. Whereas when you go somebody like the non-traditional route, like a Forbes books, um, then what happens is you, you actually own the content. You never relinquish control of the book. You own the content. You have a much cheaper price for the actual publication of the book. Now you pay, you don't get a big check up front. You pay for that, but you get it on the backside because you're in control, complete control. You don't have to ask permission to publish a little snippet like you do if it's more traditional and your price per copy is much, much less than it would be to buy it through uh, your, your normal traditional publishing route. So uh, there's pluses and minuses. Yeah, yeah, there's pros and cons to both for sure. Um, and then just in case I missed it, so what is your, your next book going to be about? Is it a similar topic or? It's in the same field, but it's the second book is called How Teams Triumph and managing is managing by commitment is a subtitle. And as I was saying earlier, I noticed over my time of teaching, I found myself talking more and more about people and conversations because in project work, there are two things I think that make you successful to be, to be a successful project manager. One part is process. You have to have process. There's no doubt about it. You can't just have a big checklist of items and pull off the Olympics. It's not going to work that way. You need to have a process. Who owns what? Who's going to do what? When is it going to be done by? Who's waiting on whom? You know, what happens after this task? That's all process, right? But the other side that I find is just as important and frankly, much more difficult is the people side. Because a, B, and C all have to get done, but they're done by three different people that are motivated by three different things. And because we're a global global world today, they might be located in three different continents. So I can't even walk down the hallway and have a conversation with that person. I've got to shoot them an email, which also comes back in one of the one of the chapters in the book is really a lot about this is this piece around conversation. I think again, I think people we like to get things done, right? We have this innate desire to want to check it off of our to-do list. And so I think this leads people to be very, very open, very actually desirable for them to send out an email or send out a text or post something on Jira or some other collaboration tool. Because if I do that, I could check it off my list. It's done. Now it's somebody else's problem and, I, and I'm off to the next thing. And what I really find people don't necessarily want to do, which is a mistake, is have a conversation about a task. Because if I actually, if I send you an email, then I'm saying, hey, I'm done. Now it's Tyler's problem. But if I actually have a conversation with you, I might find out that what I gave you isn't really what you wanted, and I'm not done. 
So not only is it not off my to-do list, I've actually got to do more now. And I don't like that. So I think human nature is to want to throw it over the fence and give it to somebody else. So when I was doing the research for this chapter on, you know, communications, I kept thinking, maybe we just need more communication, more communication. And in my mind, my definition of communication actually was a little bit off of what I thought it was. So when I went back and I did the research and I started, I just looked it up in the dictionary. I said, hey, what is communication? And according to Webster, communication is the actor process of using words, sounds, signs, and behaviors to express or exchange information. And the key word there is just to express. And so by that definition, I can send an email. I can send, send a text. I could post something on JIRA. I can write a blog. And those are all technically communications. But what they don't do is add clarity. And the example I like to use for that is probably when you were in grade school or at some point, they lined five or six of you up in a row and they told the first person, whisper this in the next person's ear. And that person would whisper and then that person would turn around and whisper to the next person. And the thing that came out of person number 10 is not remotely close to what person number one said. Yet in each case, they were actually communicating. But the problem with that approach is they weren't having a conversation. With a conversation, I'll give you the definition of conversation. Conversation, while similar, is a little bit different. It's the oral exchange of sentiments, observations, opinions, or ideas. The key word there being exchange. So now you take that same 10, 10 people in a row. The first person tells the second person something. That person is now able to ask clarifying questions. Well, do you mean this or do you mean that? And then what comes out, because each person can ask those questions, what comes out of person number 10 is very similar to what the first person said. So I think we, we have this mentality of, you know, communicate, 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 but not really have a conversation. And that, that's the problem. We communicate all day long, but there's no conversation around that. Yeah. Wow, man. I've never like heard it be broken down like this, but it makes so much sense. And I think you're right because just like in teams, there's just these little things that could be fixed if conversations were had but typically you'll see them go on like over and over and over again. And um, it's almost like what, what I like to do and, and what you're saying is even more so, but what I like to do is kind of like a monthly and probably even should do it more like a monthly audit, you know? So basically look, look at the business and see like, okay, what, what problems did we face? And are we, are we continuing to face them or repeating them? And if so, then let's, you know, fix it rather than, you know, just let it go on. But I, I feel like I don't, I don't even know most companies do that, you know, like they're not just not aware. Of yeah. That. So you're talking about more of a lessons learned, which is certainly something that needs to happen, right? You don't want to repeat the mistakes yeah. of the past. Um, in our world, we're actually doing things that are a little bit more uh, succinct and tangible in that I've got by yeah. month 14, I've got to deliver a, a semiconductor chip that has this pen out that does these has this feature set that I'm going to be able to sell to this customer. I've got to develop this agricultural tractor in 28 months that, that I can now sell to these clients. And so that means to get those things done by those deadlines, I've got intermediate earlier deliverables that have to be done and who's going to do all the work to get to each of those deliverables. And you're going to build a plan to get you there, but the, the plans are obviously, they need to change. I don't care how good you are at planning your, your plan that you, that you may build the best plan in the world on day one, but by day two, it's probably needs to change because somebody was yeah. sick, somebody got hurt, you know, a factory burned to the ground or went out of business, or we had to shelter in place for, you know, six weeks. What is the impact of all these things in your project plan? And so you have to come back and make the course corrections. 
And people, again, are very, and so I think it's actually even more applicable right now in a remote world where we're all disjointed and, and disconnected. We are very, very content to simply shoot an email off. And in my mind, I'm done. Whereas we ought to get on Zoom or have a conversation, pick up the phone and actually say, what do you mean by that? I think we should go here. I think we should go there. And if we need to expand that conversation to get five or six people involved, let's do that. But I think human nature says, ah, I don't really want to do that. Let me just shoot this email. And if they don't agree with it, they can figure it out. And, and we have to overcome that because that's, that's not going to be the way to lead successful projects. Yeah, 100%. And you know what? You can kind of tell because that's probably one of my most frustrating things. You can tell when somebody just shoots you an email and they're, and they're like, and they could have put a little more effort into it to actually like make sure you understood but they just give it to you raw to see what you're going to do with it. <laughs> oh yeah, of course. They want to put it on your plate, right? <laughs> yeah, dude. Yo, that's probably, oh man, I'm actually starting to really realize how important this actually is because I think in, in big corporations too, like I, I'm just small business owner, like small virtual team. So there's really, there, there's enough communication, but there, it's not a ton, like not even 10 people. Right. So we don't, it doesn't get too confusing, but in a huge corporation, like fortune 50, I mean, how much I can only imagine are people kind of trying to pass on tasks to, uh, you know what I mean? And it's just like this web of not conversation. Like we have, we have clients that are startups and so they only have a, you know, a handful of people, but if you're a virtual, it is really easy to have person a be going in a completely different direction than person B. Because yeah. They, they all heard the same boss say the same thing but their interpretation of what the boss said is very, very different. So they, they work off, they run off and they're working really hard, but they're not working in the same direction. Right. So then you've got people pulling, even if they're mostly the same direction, still not efficient because you've got some people pulling slightly left and some people pulling slightly right. And occasionally you got somebody pulling backwards. And what we need is everybody to come together, have a conversation. And so when we leave the room, we're all pulling due North and not, different directions. And so even if you have a small team, whenever you go virtual, this just adds to complexity and adds to the silos. And we have to do things to pull ourselves out of silos. And to me, it's not about communicating because we can communicate all day long. It's about having a conversation. So I walked by a group. This is what kind of started this whole chapter in my head a few years ago is I walked by a group of individuals. There were four or five people standing, facing each other in a circle but nobody was making eye contact. They were all looking down at their phones in their hands and their fingers were just busily typing away on the screen. And I thought, you know, they're having, I guess they're communicating maybe even to each other, but what they're not doing is having a conversation because nobody's talking to each other verbally. There's no, there's no eye contact. And so it's really easy for that kind of stuff to be misconstrued. And then I I thought, this is really bizarre. I feel like we've come full circle. And when you think about it, you know, go back hundreds of thousands of years ago and you have the cave person in the cave and the way they communicate is they draw a picture of a buffalo on the wall with a spear, right? And then the cave person, cave, I don't want to say caveman, but the cave person pointed the buffalo and grunts and points like we're going to go hunt this, right? This is what we're going to go do. And so that's how we communicate. And then, you know, for eons, the way we communicated was through spoken word. We sat around store. We sat around the fire, and the elders told the stories that that we told our kids and their grandkids, and that's how we passed on traditions was through oral communication. Then you have written word that comes out, and people start to write books. And I think the biggest book 
there's one called the blah story, but I don't count that one. It's almost, it's over 3 million words, but I think over 2 million number the word blah written over and over again. But, you know, there's all these big books that came out like Mission Earth by L. Ron Hubbard was uh, over a million words. I think it was 1.2 million words. And then the biggest one that I remember that wasn't the blah story was Marion Bod, My Love, which was two and a half million words, right? And then, so that to me, that was kind of the pinnacle of, of really the way we were able to communicate to each other in, in, in a great way was through written word even was these big tomes that we would write. Then email came out. Email actually came out in the early 70s, although it wasn't mainstream until the late 80s and early 90s when internet really became more mainstream. Then in the late 90s, you had emojis. Emojis came out, were created in Japan. And so people began to communicate with, with you know, thumbs up and smiley faces. And, and I got to tell you, from a project man perspective, anytime I see a smiley face, I don't really know what that means. Is the smiley face, ha ha, I'm never doing this task and you just don't know it yet? <laughs> what does that really mean, right? So what is a thumbs up? Yeah, yeah, I'm going to get to this eventually. Those aren't really ways of telling me what you're really going to do. And then we, of course, in 2006, Twitter came out. And after you can't say it in 140 characters, I guess you can't say it. And so in my mind, I see we've come full circle. You know, go back to the caveman days. And my way of communicating was I'm going to grunt a couple times, point at a picture on the wall and point outside, let's go hunt this animal. And now I look at my computer screen, tap, tap, and I send you an emoji. And I don't know what, that, that's not communication. Or that's not a conversation. And so I'm really big on let's, let's have a conversation. Let's have a two-way dialogue that I express my ideas. You disagree. That's fine. Then let's have a conversation, dialogue back and forth, and figure out what the right thing to do is. When we leave this room, this room together, we're going to be heading in the same direction. Yeah, I love it. Yeah, I've never. I feel like the reason it's such a big problem, or it just keep, it, it reoccurs all the time, is because people are just unaware. I really do think so. Like I, I never realized how much emphasis needed to be put on this because. I'm just, I'm just thinking about my eight years in entrepreneurship and like all the miscommunications that happened where they didn't have to happen. That's, it's pretty wild. There's a, there's a parable out there. I don't have this, so I won't get this exactly right because I don't have it memorized, yeah. but there's a parable and, and it, it really makes, it, it just resonates with me because I remember when I went on vacation, uh, this has been years ago now, but, and I, I left my, I left my management team. I said, Hey, this, this person called and, and I need, you know, one of y'all needs to go do this, right? And I said what it was. And I came back from vacation a week later and it wasn't done. And I said, why wasn't this done? And here's where the parable comes in. It's basically anybody could have done it. Somebody should have done it. Nobody did it. Because <laughs> yeah. everybody thought somebody else would do it. Yeah. It just for me, it was it actually was a true story. There's a parable that's out there. I think it's called uh, somebody, anybody. Anyway, you can Google that. But that was yeah, a, it really resonated with me because it happened to me. Anybody could have done it. Somebody should have done it, but nobody did it. Because why it boils down to I didn't have a conversation that said, hey, Joe, you go do this. I sent an email to four different people saying this needed to get done. And that was that I communicated, but I didn't have a conversation around it. Therefore, there was no ownership. Yeah. Um, so one of the last questions I want to ask you is like, what do you, what do you recommend for teams? And maybe you don't go too much deeper in this, but what do you recommend for teams like outside of work? And do you, do you get into that like 
teams should be like kind of bonding on a personal level or is it just like strictly in the office? No, I think it's, to me, there's a, there's a philosophy that I have, which is I need to turn you from an email address into a living, breathing human being. That's really what it comes down to. So let's say that you and I have worked together, Tyler, for 10 years, but you're in Austin, Texas, and I'm in San Francisco, California, let's say. So you know, you, I know you very well as Tyler at acmecorporation.com. And I know that when I do my part of the project, I email it to you and you do something to it. The magic happens and the company makes money and everybody wins, right? Success. <laughs> and, but the, the problem is I'm on seven different projects at any given time. And just one of them is where I give you information that you then use for your part of the project. I put in my 50, 60 hour weeks every single week. I work hard, man. I, I'm a company man. I do my job. I do it well. And I work really, really hard. But there's always more on my plate than I can possibly take on. So if I'm running a little bit late on the task that belongs that I need to give to you, I don't really feel that bad about it because I'm working hard. I'm doing my job and I'm putting in my 50 plus hours and I'm, I'm doing the right thing. And, you know, if I'm a little bit late on your piece, and that's just the way it has to be, right? Because you're just, you're just Tyler at acmacorporation.com. So when I finally finish my task three or four or five days late, I email it to you and, hey, sorry, this is late, but here it is. And then the next thing I know, the company, you know, you do your magic and the company, the product gets to released on time. The company makes money and, hey, we all win. So I don't think anything's wrong. But then we always recommend getting everybody together at the very beginning of the project for in our world, at least three days. We come together for three days. We force these clarifying conversations. And when I say come together, I mean face to face in a room together. And I know that today's obviously shelter in place world, that's not gonna happen, but hopefully it gets back to this because there are some bonds that you can form when you're face to face. It will never get formed virtually. And here's why. We have those three, that three day planning session. What is happening is you and I, you know, we're all, we're in the room together talking about the project, we lay the project out and you and I on a coffee break are just having a conversation and, and I'm, you know, shooting the breeze. And I learned that you have a son and, Oh, I got a son. And how old's your son? Oh, my son's 13. Oh, my son's 13. What is he? Like? My son plays soccer. Oh, my son plays soccer, but now he's transitioned over. He's a black belt in Taekwondo. Oh, we tried that for a while. We have these bonding conversations where I humanize you. Well, then later we come back from the coffee break and I notice that the activity that I feed into that belongs to you is one of those things that if it's late, the whole project gets late. And so I, I bring that up and I say, well, Tyler, I think something's wrong with the plan we built because I know for a fact that I was late on the last project and the project didn't finish, didn't finish late. So uh, the connection we have, something up here must be wrong. And, and you say, well, Clint, no, that's actually, the, the connection is right. When you gave it to me four days late last time, I had to work two weekends in a row to make up for that. Because I knew if I was late, the whole project would be late. So I, I worked two weekends in a row to make up for that. And I got to tell you, man, I was, you were not uh, on, my, on my happy list of people to work with because, because of those two weekends, I had to miss a really big soccer match. It was really important to my son. And I had to miss it because I had to work to make up for it. And I got to tell you, man, I was, you were not on my Christmas card list at that moment. And now I start to feel bad because I, I put myself in, in your shoes. And I think, well, that's, that, that's terrible, man. I, I wouldn't want that to happen to me. And so I, now when I go back to San Francisco and you go back to Austin, Texas, you're still Tyler at AcmeCorporation.com, but you can bet the next time I have a task that feeds into you, I'm going to think to myself, Tyler guy, and I don't want to be the reason he's late. So I'm going to make sure I get this task done 
And so now what happened is I, you are now a living, breathing human being. You are not just an email address. And it is really difficult to do that kind of stuff all virtually. So that's why we really want to bring people together. Because what we found is even on large, complex projects that span, I think the, some of the biggest ones I've ever worked on was over 25,000 activities in the project plan, right? That's massive. This is four, five, six-year programs for you know, big tractors to get developed. Mm. But it, that bond, those bonds we create in that first three or four days, we can spend the rest of the project remote and virtual and have no problems. But we've got to have those establishments up front of letting you be a living being human being and not an email address that I can just throw things over the fence and not worry about. Yeah, no, it makes complete sense. And you're right. It is this like kind of weird feeling virtually, especially when you have never met them in person. It just, it doesn't feel a hundred percent real. It right. Just doesn't. Um, so yeah, man. Yeah. Th thanks for, uh, for coming on. I feel like I, I feel like my eyes have kind of been opened up a little bit. <laughs> this is interesting. Um, so uh, I guess I, I'll leave it to you. If there's anything else you want to share, the floor is yours. And then also, um, you know, make sure the website, the book, um, and anything else, social media. So yeah, social media, it's clint.paget at LinkedIn. Clint.paget is my Twitter handle. So C-L-I-N-T dot P-A-D-G-E-T-T. -T. Projectsuccess.com is the website. And, uh, you know, any, anybody have any questions, shoot me an email, go to the website, send me a contact, and I'm happy to talk to you. Sounds good, man. Thanks again for coming on. Thanks, Tyler. I appreciate you having me. The Authors Unite show is sponsored by AuthorsUnite.com. Your one-stop shop for becoming a profitable author and maximizing your impact.